Good. Last week we, we looked at chapter 35 of Genesis. We kind of brought to somewhat of a conclusion the section on Jacob. If you remember, uh, we'll continue. You'll see what I mean. He's not finished with Jacob, but really kind of going to begin talking about his children. And so we talked about the fact that as Genesis lays out, this is the end of the patriarchal period. So when you see in scripture, like when God appears to Moses, when he appears to others, he says, I'm the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you saw how those promises were passed down. They were given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses one through three. They were reiterated when God appeared to Isaac and they were reiterated again when God appeared to Jacob, how he gave them those promises each and every time. And we've walked alongside all of these fellas is kind of seeing their stories, the ups and the downs and the, the, tra the traveling through, if you will. Now, as we get here in chapter uh, 35 and got to that, we saw that these deaths, there were three deaths recorded, Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, uh, Rachel and Isaac. These deaths were recorded there, almost giving the sense of that ending of that period. And then we're going to deal here in chapter 36 with one more thing. I hope we can get a little bit into chapter 37 this evening, but we'll see how it works. But in chapter 36, we've got to deal with this one Esau. And the reason is because, uh, just a, a couple reasons I, I want to remind you. Um, it's because Esau is important as well to understand during this time. Isaac had uh, two children. He had twins. He had Jacob and Esau. And we saw how the promise came to Jacob. Now, remember, that was told in the, the prophecy that was given to Rachel there. I mean, Rebecca, excuse me, told to the prophecy that was given to her that the young one will, will, will rule over the, the older one, right? Because Jacob came out second. So even though he was not firstborn, he would still be the one that rules. And the older one would bow down. And remember, that was part of the problem, even though that promise was there and she knew it, Rebecca knew it. She tried to bring that about on her own, which led to deception, which led to tearing apart of her family, which led to Jacob having to go off and the older son wanting to kill the younger one, it led to mess and turmoil because even though it was a part of God's plan, she tried to take that into her own hands and work it out according to her timings and that didn't work. At the same time, you get to the end and Jacob, through his journey, having been with Laban, his uncle, for 20 years and having been deceived uh, uh, in, in such a way, even though he was the deceiver, now Jacob was out-deceived by his uncle Laban and he finally gets uh, his wives, Leah and Rachel, and the children start to come. He works for six more years. Finally, he separates. God brings him back. And even after some turmoil and process there, we see finally he's back at Bethel where Abraham was. He's dwelling back there where God told him to be and to stay. So you have that. But now what about Esau and his kin? What about them? Now this is important too because we recognize Esau's proximity. He's, he's the son of Isaac, which speaks to promises that will come to Isaac's children, right? So we recognize that. We also uh, remember the context that this is written. This book, Genesis, is written by Moses. We know that. Why? Because Jesus said so, right? Jesus says, Moses wrote about me. 
Moses is writing this book. So no matter what any kind of scholar likes to tell you that this was editorialized and split up and tore up and all those other things, we know that Jesus said Moses wrote it. And so that's good enough for me. Correct? Everybody good with that? So Jesus is saying Moses wrote this. So Moses is writing this. Where was Moses writing this? Moses is writing this in the wilderness headed toward the promised land. He's writing this as he's meeting. In fact, several times throughout this, it says Moses met with the Lord face to face, right? And so he's writing this as the people of Israel are traveling from Egypt to the promised land. Therefore, who's in the promised land? The Canaanites. The Canaanites are there. They're going there. And just as we saw earlier, it was the Canaanites who dwelled in this land, even when Abraham was there, even when Isaac, and here even when Jacob, the Canaanites dwelled in that land, and the people of God were about to go in it, as Moses is writing it, and take it from them, because it was rightfully theirs according to the promise. And this is telling them that these Canaanites and these uh, Edomites, if you will, are sinful. And therefore, God is going to use Israel even to bring about the judgment on them as they go into the promised land. In other words, this is a, what we call a theodicy, an argument for what God is going to do and why he's going to do it. So Abraham is instructing the Israelites who've been in captivity in Egypt for uh, 400 years, if you will, on who they are, what the promises are, and why they're going to this land to take it because God has promised it to them. He's instructing them as they walk out. So in this, it's going to be helpful for them to understand who these Edomites are. It's going to be helpful for them to understand who these people are that they're going to be uh, facing and where did they come from. And so we want to see this. And so Abraham, uh, Moses, as he's writing, is going to spend time here speaking about Esau's descendants. If you see in chapter 1 of 36, these are the generations of Esau. Remember that statement, these are the generations of. It's kind of the section marker of Genesis. We've seen that. These are the generations of Adam. These are the generations of Seth. These are the generations of Noah. We've seen it all the way throughout. These are generations of Abraham. These are generations of Isaac. It's kind of the marker that sets off the sections of Genesis. So we're going to have that here. In fact, we'll have the last one over in 37 too. These are the generations of Jacob. And it'll speak about his sons. So you see how we're going to discuss that in 36. And really, as you read through this, this is just going to be a list of names. Generations of Esau, that is Edom, which is the, the nation that comes from him. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites. Adah, the daughter of Elon, Hittite. I, I, could, I could show off to y'all right now and read all these names real fast. You know what I'm saying? Just kind of skirt through them and read them without any hesitation and no interruption and no stutter. And I could do it. But I feel like that may be just me showing off. And so we're going to stop right there. And y'all just know it. You know what I'm saying? There they are. And so you have all of these names. And what we'll learn here, as you read these first eight verses, down in verse 7, or even verse 6, Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, all his property he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. Moses is telling them, these are the Edomites. This is where they came from. This is why you should know them. What we find here is Esau 
even though he tried to forget God. Esau did not consider his birthright as something he needed to keep. In fact, his birthright, his birthright wasn't even worth a bowl of beans for him, remember? He got hungry. He didn't want it. He traded it. He gave it away at a moment just for instant gratification because his stomach was growling. He was willing to give up the birthright of the promises of God, and he sold it for a moment for a bowl of beans. That's exactly what Hebrews says whenever he brings it back up. Remember, remember Esau who, who gave away the promises for a bowl of beans, right? For his stomach was, was, was hungry, and that's it. That's all it took, and he gave away the promises of God. So Esau is not one that cared and really ultimately tried to forget God. But what we find in this is that God really did not forget him. He's still the son of Isaac. He's still in some way located close to Isaac enough that God is going to fulfill his promises to bless Isaac's children. He's going to fulfill his promises by blessing Esau and him. And so you see Esau's blessing. In fact, Esau, the son of Isaac, was being blessed even when Jacob was not being blessed. Jacob went off to Laban and didn't have anything. Jacob left out because he was scared of Esau and he had to sleep on a rock, you remember, and out in the desert. He had nothing when he left, so he left out and had nothing. And the whole time he's over here with Laban struggling to make it, trying to earn his way to get the pretty wife, and he got handed the ugly one. That's what the Bible says. And so even as he's doing this, God is blessing Esau. So even while Jacob is not finding blessing in his possessions, God is blessing Esau at this time. Because God is going to keep his promise to care for the children of Isaac. He becomes this great nation, which is Edom, which is Edom. Esau prospered even when Jacob, who was with Laban, wasn't prospering. But let's note a couple things here. Remember about Esau. Esau despised his birthright. We find that in chapter 25, verse 34. I have written down here. Esau despising his birthright, telling them that he, he doesn't care for it. He doesn't want it. Uh, moving on past 24. Esau despises his birthright. Therefore, he despised the spiritual things. The birthright here was testimony to a future hope, right? The birthright was hoping on something in the future of God's blessing. And so that was what the birthright was. It wasn't something that you would get at that moment. It wasn't something that you would get handed even right there. He despised the birthright. He's despising the future blessing of God. He's despising. He's saying, I need the instant gratification of now. And whenever we discuss that passage, we discuss how we can look at Esau and say, hey, uh, he sold his birthright for a bowl of beans. But how often, how often do we turn away from what God desires for us for the instant gratification of the moment, right? For what we can get right now. I need this right now. And we get what we can right now and spurn the promises of God to get it. Esau did that very thing. He despised the things of God. He did not care for them, despised the birthright. Again, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 16 and 17 says this as well. Remember, it says in Hebrews chapter 12 that he even sought repentance with tears and it wasn't granted. But remember back in Genesis, why did he seek repentance? He sought repentance because he lost the wealth. He lost something. He wasn't repentant because he had spurned the godly things. He was repentant because he had lost what he wanted was his. He was angry about it. And in the fact that he was repentant, he still said what? I want to kill my brother, right? He was crying and weeping for what he lost and said, I'm going to kill him for it. 
And so here Hebrews says, yeah, he can seek after it if he wants to, but what he wasn't looking for was true repentance. What he was looking for is to get his stuff back, but he spurned it and despised it and he lost it. And he lost it. Don't be like Esau, the author of Hebrews says. Don't spurn the things of God for an instant gratification. Paul says that those who are wicked and of this world, they look after their appetites more than anything else. And Paul uses that language not to say simply that they're looking for food, but it fits with Esau, doesn't it? What Paul is saying is, what are our appetites? What is it that we lust for, that we long for, that we're looking to get fulfillment from, that we're seeking satisfaction from? Again, this idea, we've talked about this a lot on Sunday morning and other times, this idea of satisfaction is what everybody's trying to find. And what the world says is satisfaction can only be found by pursuing after your appetites. Whatever it is you lust after, whatever it is you want, go get it, grab it. Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow you die. Go get it all and have it. And that's the only way you're going to find satisfaction. Where the Lord says the opposite. The Lord says satisfaction is not and cannot be found in the instant gratification of the moment. Satisfaction is found in the blessing of God that only can come from him. That only can come from him. And so here Esau despises spiritual things and turns away from God. And not only that, he indulges in his sinful nature. Not not only did he eat the bowl of beans instead of his birthright, but look how he turns in chapter 34. Isaac, I mean, excuse me, chapter 36, Isaac had told his children, don't get wives from Canaan, right? Go back and get them from our people. Don't get them here. That's because these Canaanites are wicked. They bring in ungodly things. Don't get them here. And so what does... What does Esau do? Don't get wives from Canaan. Esau goes and gets two of them. He gets two wives from Canaan. Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah, it says. And so ultimately, Esau doesn't listen to his parents. He doesn't care what they want. He doesn't, he doesn't opt for that. He just says, I want to fulfill my lusts and my desires in this. And whenever we despise spiritual things, we've got to put something in their place. And that's what Esau does. Worldly things. He puts them there. He ultimately, what we'll read, if you read on down through this, is it talks about the sons of Esau, the sons of Seir, the kings and chiefs who come from them. You see the blessing as it passes on. What you see is that Esau fails to pass spiritual concerns on to his family. And so Esau doesn't care about the spiritual things. Esau doesn't worry about it. And so the telling of the story of the promises, the telling of the things of God stops with Esau and he he does not pass them on. That's a contrast from the last chapter, right? Remember last week we talked about Jacob who, when the Lord calls him to go back to Bethel, he tells all of his children, burn all of the stuff from the Canaanites. Burn, bury the gods that you may have. Take your clothes off that you got from them. We're not going to have anything from the Canaanites. Set all that aside. We've got to purify ourselves for the Lord. We've got to do this. So in that then, he begins to tell them the promises. And he speaks to them of what God has promised. Telling them of what God has done. Seeing that Jacob's job and duty here is not to stand in the way of his children following the Lord. But because the patriarchal period was over, right? God appeared to Jacob. 
Now Jacob is to tell his children of what God's promises are. God's not going to come to all of his 12 children for he's going to form the 12 tribes and appear to them and remind them of the promise. He's not going to keep doing that. It's now Jacob's responsibility to tell them and pass that on. And Jacob does that. He does that. But not Esau. When you read this passage, what you notice here is Esau doesn't. He starts naming people all kind of stuff. He doesn't have any spiritual names. In fact, some of them, if you go down, some of them are called Baal. He uses the name Baal, which is a god of the Canaanites. And he names his children after the Baals even. And so he does not pass on the things of God to his children. He lets those things die. He didn't care for spiritual things. Therefore, he didn't pass them on, right? You may say that seems normal. And surely it does. Because that's the truth. We pass on to our kids what we truly care for and love. Just think about it. You talk about the majority of the things you discuss and talk about are the things you love, the things you care for. I'm not going to sit around and talk about Mary Kay or something with my boys. You know what I'm saying? I don't even know what that is. Allison does with Macy Grace talking about it. I, I listen. I'm like, what are y'all talking about? Bass or something. Your color's not matching. I don't know. But what I do talk about with my boys is I do talk about sports because I love sports. I do talk about the, the best style of barbecue to eat because that's good for them, right? For the future. They need to know these things. We do talk about the things we love and that's what we pass on to our kids and our kids reflect what we love and what we care for. And why is that? Because that's what we talk about. That's what we discuss. And so, listen, while it's not a foolproof method, because ultimately it's in God's hands, we need to make sure what we're passing on to our kids is not only those things we love in this world and those things that we, 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 we have fun with and we enjoy like sports and food and other things, but we must be passing on to them the promises of God that we have held close to. We must, it's, it's in our hands to do such a thing. Just as it was when Paul mentioned it to Timothy, how his grandmother and his mother passed these on to him. So it is for us. It's our duty to pass these on to the ones come after us. And ultimately, the responsibility for teaching our children these things does not. And hear me when I say this, because this is good for me to say this right now. The responsibility to pass on the truths of God does not fall on anybody other than you as the parents. It is not Ultimately, the church's responsibility to tell the kids about the things of God. Our job and role is to come alongside you as a parent, as a grandparent, and help train your kids up. But ultimately, you can't pass that off. You don't get to pass the buck. That's your role. That's your job. And if it's uncomfortable, get over it. Because the answer is not forget about it as too uncomfortable. Because the end effect could be terrible in the life of your kids. It's not worth it. It's not worth it not to tell them. In fact, telling our kids, while it may be uncomfortable, is all the more reason to do it, to get over it, because that's our role and responsibility. And see so here, you see it with Jacob. He begins to do it. He's no perfect dad. This gives hope for me, right? I mean, Jacob has got kids killing a bunch of people, including kids and women and everybody else there in chapter 34. Y'all remember that. I ain't turning back to it. He's got all kind of stuff going on. He's no perfect dad, but he does get them back to where they're supposed to be at Bethel. He does tell them of the promises, and he calls them to be pure and turn back to the Lord. He does do that. And while we may not be perfect, we can do that, right? 
We can tell him who it is who has forgiven us and leads us and directs us and guides us and where our hope is found in the future. Jacob, if you look over in chapter 37, verse 1, it just simply ends. Really, chapter 37, verse 1 is the ending of chapter 36. Let me take this moment to remind you that chapters and verses were not in the original. Y'all understand what I'm saying? Those are not inspired by God. Those were given years, years later as things like study Bibles came along and other things. The first study Bible, 1559, right? If you're going to have a study Bible, you have to have a reference of where this is talking to and looking to. Verses were included at that point. I'm giving you a little bit of history lesson. But here it's sometimes, so I can say this is a dumb place to put chapter 37. I can say that and I'm not talking about the Lord. Y'all hear what I'm saying? Because Jacob lived in the land of the father's sojourning in the land of Canaan belongs with 36. It's a simple verse. It's the ending of that section. Esau took wives from the land of Canaan, which he wasn't supposed to do, yet left it and dwelled somewhere else. Y'all see what I'm saying? Contrast that with Jacob, who went back and did what God told him to do and take a wife from his family and then come back and dwell in the land of Canaan. He understood the promise. He understood. And in that, Jacob is making an investment in the promises of God. He's cashing in on the checkbook of the bank of faith, right? He's saying, I don't know what else I may do, but I do know God told me to be here. And this is where he blesses. This is where he blesses. Now, what does that teach us then with Esau? Some things to ponder, if you will. Esau is blessed. He has so much stuff. His possessions are just as great as Jacob's. In fact, he was being blessed when Jacob was out working his tail off for his uncle Laban. But it is dangerous for us to judge people by outward appearances and possessions. Esau had a lot. And if we we're just to walk up and think that possessions determine blessing, right? To think that wealth determine blessing, we look at it and think that Esau's just as blessed as Jacob is. We look at it and think that, man, God's looking after him. And this is where we get to those questions. Why does bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people? We look at it and go, why does Esau have so much? He turned his back on God. He rejected spiritual things, yet God blessed him over and over and over again. Why does he have it? What we can't do is think that all of these possessions, all of these possessions means a closeness with God. All of these possessions does not equal salvific blessing of God, right? It cannot equal it. So wealth and possessions cannot equal that. What we also see here is that life is not static. Either you're going forward or you're going backwards. Nobody's sitting in one place in here tonight. Either you're following after the Lord and pursuing him and growing and moving toward him, or you are going backwards away from him. There's no way you just sit still. So Jacob, even though he was not perfect, he's getting back to Bethel. He's getting back to the land. He's trying. He's moving forward in this process of faith, but not Esau. Esau has done everything God had said, the opposite of it. He took wives from Canaan and left the place. He took wives from there and left. Esau is moving backwards. He's moving away. And I'll, I'll get to that in a minute as we look through these names and the list of these people. Three, there's an idea of common grace. Common grace is the idea that God gives grace to even those who are unbelievers. There is a common grace that is given to all people, right? 
God is in control of all things. Therefore, he gives grace even to those who are not his. They receive. The sun shines and it shines on the blessed and the cursed, right? The rains come and it rains on the blessed and the cursed. And all of this is God's grace to us. And that common grace goes to everyone. And it is there. But that means that there's not just this common grace comes, but common grace, even as we see it here, is a reason for greater judgment of God. It's a reason for greater judgment. In other words, Esau at the end of the day, while God had blessed him and while God had given him so many possessions, he still must repent, right? He still must turn back to God. In fact, Romans chapter 2, Paul makes this statement in Romans chapter 2. Paul goes off on it. Romans chapter 1 speaks of this very thing. Uh, verse 24, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever and ever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. He's talking about even though God has been seen, you see how people get more and more wicked, he says. And look how they just keep getting wicked. And then the question comes up as Paul seeks, and Paul writes like this a lot, where he, he tries to answer the questions before we ask him, tries to anticipate those things. And so the question comes up, well, then why does, why does it seem like good things happen to those wicked people? Why does it seem like that happens to them? Why does it seem like good things still happen to them? And then you have good people and bad things tend to happen to them. Paul's anticipating that. And Paul says here in chapter 2, he says... Uh, making sure I get the right verse. Do you presume, verse four, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? In other words, Paul says, you look at his kindness, his forbearance and his patience with you, even though you've turned from him, even though you've gone wicked, even though you're not following him, still he's being kind for you. First of all, you're still alive. Second of all, he's blessing you. He's giving you things in this world, in this life. He hasn't dealt finally with you. He's still allowing you to be here, even in your sin. You're looking at the kindness of his gifts, even in your sinfulness to you. You're looking at the kindness of those things. And he says, do you not presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God's kindness in our life should not be something that we look on and think we have earned this or made it. Y'all ever heard of how people sometimes they, they have so much in life, they're blessed with so much, you know? We can look around and see on the news. I heard that, that good statement I love about people that are blessed and it just gets passed down from one generation to another. They say they, they're, they're born on third base and they thought they had a triple. Y'all know what I'm talking about. They were handed this and they thought they earned it. And Paul is addressing this. What about these people that were given so many good things and they thought they earned it? And Paul says, the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance. Don't look at it and think you did this. Don't look at it and think you earned this. And if that's how you think, the judgment is only going to be greater for you. And that's what we see here. God's kindness. I think about it all the time. That verse 
God's kindness leads us to repentance. And the moment we think about the kindness and goodness of God, it should lead us to an attitude of repentance before him. Remember, repentance is not a one and done thing. Repentance is a lifestyle that we live as believers. We live a lifestyle of repentance before the Lord. When we turn away from him, when we sin, we are to constantly turn from that sin and repent. We're to move away from it. We're to get out of it, right? As as Martin Luther said, the bird may fly over your head, but you don't have to let them make a nest in your hair, you know? (laughs) Sin comes into our life, and sometimes it happens to us before we even know it, because by nature we do this, and we seek after it, but then we're reminded of God's goodness and kindness to us, and it causes us to turn from that sin and repent of it. God's kindness leads us to repentance. Esau did not see that. God had been kind to him. He thought he deserved it. God had been kind to him. He thought he earned it. God had been kind to him, and he thought it was rightfully his. And the only thing that happens is his children after him just get more and more wicked. That's the attitude he passes down. And the judgment, as Moses is writing about these Edomites, that judgment is coming. It's coming. Don't think because God is slow to it that it's not coming. And that slowness is only giving you more time, hopefully, to realize his kindness is for your repentance. Don't have forbearance on it. And here, back to it, that's exactly what Esau does. He is believing that God's kindness is what he deserves, and he runs away from God. What we know is, though, that God arranges our lives. And chapter 36 tells us this, even Esau God is in control, and Esau does not turn to him. It goes on. After verse 8, it really turns to these Edomites. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites, the hill country of Seir. And as I said, we consider who these Edomites are and, 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 and think about what they've done. And we do have a place. Remember, one of our great principles of understanding the Scripture is the best interpreter of Scripture is what? Scripture. Good. The best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture. And so turn with me to Obadiah. Now, I'll give you all a second to find that, okay? (laughs) Remember our rule. We've got to read the Bible, right? Y'all remember, right? When you get to heaven and you meet Obadiah and he says, how'd you like my book? You better be ready to say it was a good one, you know? Don't lie in heaven. Liars go to hell. And so Obadiah... Obadiah is a prophecy about Edom. The Edomites is who we discussed. And Obadiah is a prophecy about Edom. And what I want to see is you want to see how I said this kindness of God and blessing should lead them to repentance, but instead it makes them harder and more wicked, thinking they earned it and they had a right to it. And if you look at verse 10, if you will, or 11, somewhere in there, because there's only one chapter. You'll start to see how this violence of Edom grows against the people of Israel. So the violence, remember the violence of Esau. He wanted to kill his brother, right? And, And the Lord stayed that, and they had some sort of reconciliation, and Jacob said, yeah, I'll follow you. And he and Esau went on ahead, and Jacob went the other way. But yet, They had that, but now you see they separate. And so 
here that violence of, of Esau saying, I want to kill my brother grows from generation to generation. So as you read Genesis 36, you see that violence is really growing against God's people. And that's what Obadiah says. Verse 11, you see, first of all, the people of Edom are standing aloof, as it says, as it says, when their brother stumbles on the day, verse 11, that you stood aloof on the day that strangers carried off his wealth. Whenever the Babylonians and others came in and um, ransacked Israel and destroyed them, the Edomites looked at them and did what? Nothing. They just stood aloof, it says. They stood back. Whenever foreigners entered the gates, you stood back. You didn't do anything. And what else did you do? You cast lots for Jerusalem. In other words, who's going to get it? You start talking about how you can ransack them as well. So first they stood aloof. Then, as it says down in verse 12, but you did not gloat over them on that day. In other words, you looked down on them. You did not gloat over them the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. In fact, you do, do not rejoice over the people of Israel on the day of their room. Do not boast in their distress. What the Obadiah is saying is that they did all of these things. He's calling them not to, but they looked down. They, they rejoiced over Israel's distress. In other words, they saw their brother suffering and what they do. They were glad about it. They were happy that their brother suffered. They were happy they were in trouble. They were happy that this was happening to them. They're sitting back. They're not doing anything about it. And then it grows even more. They look down on them, gloat. They, didn't, they gloated over them. Ha ha. Then they just looked at them and said, we're, we're rejoicing in it. In fact, they boasted in it. Do not boast in the day of their distress. They boasted in the fact that their brother Israel was in distress and hurting. They rejoiced in it and they boasted and bragged in it. And ultimately, finally, they keep going. They march through the gates in verse 13. Do not enter the gates of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of their calamity. They march through the gates. They seize the wealth. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Verse 14, finally, they delivered them to the enemies. You see how the violence grows? They went from just standing back to boasting, to rejoicing, to going in and marching, taking what was theirs, and whoever was left over delivered them to the enemies. They ended up putting them ultimately to death. That's what the Edomites does, do. The violence of Edom grows against the people of God, and they get all the more wicked toward them. They get all the more wicked toward them. So in other words, while Jacob is not perfect, he at least passes on the promises of God. And Jacob's children by no means are perfect. They're going to rally support from one another and throw one of their own into a pit and sell them off into slavery, right? They're by no means perfect. Yet, Jacob is still passing on those promises that we see in Genesis 50. God will ultimately win in the end, right? As Joseph has gathered together and what they meant for evil, God meant for good as Joseph has them there. God is still going to walk them through and care for them, even when things look difficult. But Esau, Esau does not pass on the promises, and his people just get more and more and more wicked. Such are the effects of us if we don't pass on the promises of God that he's given us. Is they just get more and more and more wicked. They go from just standing aloof to their brother hurting, to rejoicing over them, stealing from them, and turning them into their enemies themselves. The violence just grows all the more. Ultimately, this was how, in contrast then, 
you see the life of even Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel, two brothers that were put there, right? And remember the story of Cain and Abel. Abel brings his sacrifice. God had shown Adam and his family what a sacrifice should look like in Genesis 3 because Adam sinned and Eve sinned against God. Therefore, a blood sacrifice was necessary. So the first sacrifice and substitutionary sacrifice in Scripture is from God himself who took two animals and killed them and took the skins of those animals and covered Adam and Eve with them. Adam and Eve in their nakedness were not appropriate to stand before God. So God covers them to make them appropriate by covering them in a blood sacrifice because death comes to those who sin against him. And the only way you can get out of that death is if a sacrifice is made. And the only type of sacrifice that is worthy to get you out of that death is a blood sacrifice, right? So Abel brings the best of the flock, but not Cain. Cain brings, brings the grain from his field. And the Lord looks at Cain and says, what kind of sacrifice is this? That's not it. And instead of returning and saying, sorry, God, Cain goes back and he gets a rock, not an animal, but he gets a rock. Instead of killing an animal to sacrifice for his own sins, he kills his brother out of anger. And you see it grow. And what does the Lord say? He says, Cain, sin is crouching at your door and he's ready to crush you. You crush Abel. Well, sin is growing in your heart and it's going to crush you. It's coming after you, Cain. And Cain still crushes his brother. And here you have it. Remember how we talked about this? You have the, the shepherd brother, Abel, who brings the flock hated by his brother Cain, who hates him so much he does what? Kill him. You have the shepherd brother Abel who acts as a priest by offering up a sacrifice to God. And you have the brothers who look at, the brother who looks at him and hates him, despises him, and kills him. So it is here then where you have Israel now. Because in chapter 35, what happens? God tells Jacob, no longer is your name Jacob, it shall be Israel. And you have Israel. And what's the very first thing that happens in chapter 36? You have Esau and his prominence that rises up. And what does Obadiah says? It's the very brother of Israel who will rise up against him and seek to what? Kill him. And seek to kill him. Put him to death. End him, if you will. Hand him over to the thieves. Turn him over to those who are outside of us and let them ransack him. Cast lots for the property that he may have. My point is, as we look through the Old Testament, what does Jesus say? Jesus says, everything written in the law and the prophets and the writings, right? All three sections of the Old Testament, Luke 24. After Jesus had raised from the dead, he's teaching him. All three sections, everything written in there is about me, he says. It's all about me. That I would suffer, I would die, be buried, and on the third day be raised again. Luke 24, 44 or 45. It's all about me. And you can see Jesus on every page as we turn through this, right? You can start to see glimpses of it. And remember how I talked ultimately about progressive revelation. Whenever Adam and Eve sin. God doesn't come down and go, all right, here's what I'm going to do. 
I'm going to send my son. Okay, we're going to do some. We're going to do some stuff. Create a create a whole nation. I'm going to send my son. He's going to come in. Just be a carpenter. Y'all going to think he's like nobody, but he's going to do some crazy, amazing stuff, and he's going to teach you. And instead of following him, everybody's going to hate him. They're going to put him to death on a cross. On the third day, he's going to raise again. That's not in Genesis three. God does say in Genesis three what? I'm sending one who's going to be born of a woman. He's going to crush the head of the serpent. In Genesis three fifteen. And then all the rest of the Old Testament is painting these pictures, these brush strokes, that we aren't quite sure what the picture's going to be. But still those brush strokes are being painted as we come along all the way through. And even here in this strange, odd place of Genesis 36, tagged together with Obadiah, right, we start to see how God is going to send one He's going to send one who's going to be despised by his brothers. He's the one who's going to save him, but he's going to be despised by his brothers. And what are his brothers going to do? Ransack him and kill him and put him to death and put him to death. By the way, what will we see in Genesis 37? Same thing. Joseph hated by his brothers, thrown into a pit and sold for death, right? For 20 pieces of silver. Sold for death and left for death. Only to be sold into slavery. And only to be found later. And when he's found later, what has he done? He saved his brothers from near death. So as we point it here. Jesus is the one who doesn't despise his brothers, right? Jesus is the one who, unlike Cain, he, he is his brother's keeper. He comes to his brothers and as John 1 says... As John 1 tells us, he came into his own, and his own did not receive him. But to any who would, right, they'll be called the children of God. And so ultimately, Jesus is despised and hated by his brothers. Why? Because he brings a sacrifice that is holy and pure and acceptable for God, and they hated him for it. And they put him finally to death. And as Joseph tells his brothers in Genesis 50, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. What you meant to destroy and put to death, God has meant for good. And we find a hint of that even in this story of Esau and the Edomites who despised their brother and taught to kill him. But God would overcome that, right, by bringing one from them named Jesus Christ who doesn't despise his brothers and he doesn't have violence for his enemies. In fact, he takes the violence upon himself so that his brothers can go free. They can go free. Ultimately, as we look through the text, what we're going to see, I believe, in every place, just as we'll see it in chapter 37 as Joseph begins to take that figure, if you will, just as we'll see it in 38, even in 38, when Judah and Tamar have their little episode, that's another good one that fits right in there with some of those other real good ones we've had. You don't find Genesis 38 in any children's Bible book. You know what I'm saying? But what we'll do is we'll see, even in the midst of those, you see the glimpse of the promises of God that point us to one who's greater than Jacob. One who's greater than Isaac. One who's greater than Abraham. One who's greater than Joseph even. You see the glimpses of the promises of God, of how God is going to fulfill his promises by, even though the brothers hate him, despise him, and put him to death, God will overrule their ruling. And he'll take the violence that they throw at him, and he'll crush it and end it 
coming back alive on the third day and say, now anybody that believes in me, the fulfillment of all the promises of God has everlasting life. Hopefully what we can see as we even go through these sections where you just list out a bunch of names, a bunch of names in Genesis 36, we can even see how all of this is pointing us to a day where we see a brother dying on behalf of his other brothers and bringing them life. We're thankful for God's word and all that it teaches us. And I truly believe every part of it points us to our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the hero of this book. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for all that you've given us. Thank you for Christ Jesus, our great hero, and what he's accomplished for us through his death, burial, and resurrection. God, help us always to look to him, knowing that on every page from Genesis to Revelation, Christ Jesus is the one that we should exalt and lift up above all others, for he is our hero. Father, thank you as we look to this Easter season even. Remind us over and over again every day of your kindness to us and help your kindness lead us to repentance as your people. All of this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.